Thank you for listening to the podcast for Icon Church, where we believe all people are icons of the invisible God, made in His image to reflect His glory and grace. For more information, go to iconchurch.org. We have been in 1 Corinthians. We are going to continue uh, in 1 Corinthians 12. So if you'll turn there, uh, 1 Corinthians 12, starting in verse 12. Paul is kind of making an argument here um, in, in chapters 12 and 13. And so, uh, so that we don't miss, and some of you weren't here last week and won't be here next week, so I don't want you to miss what Paul's doing overall in this section um, where he's talking about spiritual gifts. So last week, uh, my buddy Adam was here, and he taught about the individual spiritual gifts, and that was great. Super thankful to him. But Paul's argument starts basically like this. He says, listen, The Holy Spirit has gifted you, gifted us, gifted all of humanity to be who we are, to be who we were made to be for the common good, for God's world, right? We we often think about spiritual gifts as um, gifts we were given to build up our local church, right? So we go, well, if you've got a leadership gift, you should be a community group leader. If you've got a teaching gift, you should teach a Bible study. And, and yes, as far as that goes, sure, and we'll, we'll talk a little more about that. But, but in the first place, God didn't primarily give you spiritual gifts to build up icon, right? Like hear that, the point of God giving all of us spiritual gifts is not so our local church can, for the sake of God's world, for the sake of God's kingdom, okay? And so we are expressing God's kingdom in a particular way here at Icon, and so we do want to use those gifts amongst each other, but I want us to get it kind of in the right order that God gives us gifts for the sake of God's world, for the sake of God's kingdom, then for the sake of God's particular expression of that kingdom here in Seattle, and our particular expression of the kingdom in Seattle at Icon. And I don't want us to miss God's larger scope and vision for what our spiritual gifts are. So Paul's argument goes, God gave us spiritual gifts. He gave all of us spiritual gifts and a role to play. And it won't work like this whole plan of giving us gifts and giving us unique different gifts that aren't equal. They're not the same. They're all different. And none of that will work unless love, that we'll see next week in 1 Corinthians 13, unless love is the center of the community. Unless that is the the kind of primary animating idea and power in the church, God's vision for gifts and his kingdom, it just won't work. It'll fall apart in arguing and comparing, and and we're going to talk about the middle of that argument. So start with me in verse 12. He says, for just as the body, this is like the human body, is one, one body, but has many members or many parts, all and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Okay, stop there. First thing I, that Paul wants us to know, we are a body. If you are in Christ, you are part of the body of Christ. This is one of the central metaphors that Paul uses in the scriptures to describe this matters for us. Because we, we live in a world where one of the kind of foundational principles of our culture is that the truest and fullest version of you is the autonomous you. 
right? We, we live in a culture that tells us all the time that you should free yourself from the shackles of expectations of other people, of the desires of other people, of the needs of other people, that, uh, of, the, of the repression of you in any way, that the fullest version of you, the truest version of you, is the unshackled you, the unfettered you, the independent autonomous you. It is a one-dimensional version of you. You divorced from community, you all by yourself with nobody interacting, nobody asking anything of you, nobody putting restraint on you, nobody cramping your style is the boringest, worst, flattest, shallowest version of you that you could imagine. It is one of the, the kind of core lies of our culture that in order to be you, you've got to be free. It's false. In fact, uh, C.S. Lewis in his book, The Four Loves, talks about this in such a remarkable way. And if you've never read The Four Loves, I highly recommend it. If you've never heard of C.S. Lewis, just get out of here. <laughs> um, in his book, The Four Loves, he talks about um, the, the love of friendship. And kind of famously, C.S. Lewis was friends with a couple of guys, and they called themselves the Inklings, right? And they would meet at a bar in, uh, in Oxford called the Eagle and Child, and they would talk about their books, and they would share, uh, like, chapters from their books and, and read to each other and all of these things. And uh, and heard of him? And uh, a couple of other guys you've heard of less. And one of those guys, Charles, died, and, and C.S. Lewis is reflecting on the death of one of his friends, and he says this. He says, in each of my friends, there is something that only some other friend can fully bring out. By myself, I am not large enough to call the whole man into activity. I want other lights than my own to show all his facets. Now that Charles is dead, I shall never again see Ronald's, that's J.R.R. Tolkien, Ronald's reaction to specifically Charles' jokes. He says, far from having more of Ronald, having him to myself now that Charles is away, I have less of Ronald. In this, friendship exhibits a glorious nearness by resemblance to heaven itself where the very multitude of the blessed increases the fruition with each of us has of God. In other words, when we are in community, we don't just interact with each other and know each other individually, but I see something in Miko when I see Luke interact with him in a way that I could never have if it was just me and Miko. That when Vince and Cliff interact with each other and interact with me, that it multiplies the, the knowledge or the experience of the other. That I am more fully me in community with you than I would ever be by myself. Because you all bring things out of me that other people simply cannot one of the things that uh, my, my wife tells me that she loves is when we go home to my family and, uh, and I am the, one in, uh, I'm the oldest uh, of four kids in my family and I have uh, two parents. And, uh, and when we hang out as a family, um, I am the butt of everybody's jokes. Like they all make fun of me. 
she kind of loves it when we go to uh, hang out specifically with my brother, who's my younger brother, because he just mocks me mercilessly, and there's just not that many people in my life who mock me mercilessly. And I'm thankful for that, to be clear. This is not an invitation. But my brother brings out something in me that's unique, and, and, and we have a unique relationship that, that no one else brings out of me. So the, the idea that you are your truest self when you are the most autonomous is not only a lie, but it is literally the opposite of truth. It's the opposite of what is real. That the people in our lives make us a three and four dimensional person. So um, Paul is going to use metaphors um, that, that the scriptures use to describe this. And it always strikes me as a little bit dangerous because it sets up expectations that have historically often gone unmet. So we talk about, you know, the church is a family or the church is a body, this kind of perfectly functioning, unified organism, and then we get involved in a church and it's something less than that. Like we get involved in community and it's not what was promised. We get into a community group thinking, yeah, this is going to be family because the Bible calls it family. And then we realize, oh, this is super dysfunctional and weird. So there's all these kind of unmet expectations and difficulties. And I've realized over time, I've been in ministry almost 20 years, that the source of that is just one source. And it's because um, in community, you have people. And people are the worst, and so often pastors will say to one another in, in jest, I think, um, ministry would be great if it weren't for the people. Because it is always the people. In fact, um, I, one mentor said to me, it's, you can't call a community group community until there's someone in the group you don't like and you stay. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book, Life Together, says this, the person who loves their dream of community will destroy community but the person who loves those around them will create community. So Paul is setting for us a vision of how the church is supposed to work, how the body of Christ is supposed to work. It's supposed to function like a human body, that there is a kind of synergy between us, that we're all doing our part to make the thing work. One commentator I read this week called it complementary interdependence. Just kind of the kind of long, unnecessarily long thing a commentator would write. But I think it gets at the hope or the goal for Christian community, that it would be complementary because we're not all the same, but that we would be interdependent and not autonomous. So this is the goal. How do we accomplish this? Verse 14. It says, uh, for the body does not consist of one member, but of many the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? In fact, the literal translation of that is, if all were a single member, where is the body? Like there would be no body. 
As it is, there are many parts, yet only one body. So we tend to respond in one of two ways um, to this idea of being the body of Christ, and Paul is going to address both of them. And I, and, and I think they're, they're both mistakes, and that, that Paul is going to address both of these mistakes. So here's the first one. Um, we hear that w- there's the church is a body and that we're a part of the body, and our response is, well, I, I must be a part that doesn't matter. I'm, I'm not an important part. I'm not like one of those parts that's so great and so important. I'm just like a lesser part of the body that, you know, that can be removed. That's what we are, right? Like the liver? Appendix, that's one. <laughs> Keep your livers, people. If you take nothing else from this. So Paul has two answers to this. First, in verse 18, Verse 18, he says, um, but as it is, God arranged the members of the body, each one of them, as he chose. Okay? So what's Paul saying? He goes, listen, um, God made the body. It's, it's Christ's Christ body. And he, he arranged the, the members of the body, the pieces of the body, as God desired. So if we look at God's design and and begin to say, well, that part is less and that part is more and this part is better and this part is worse and I'm this part and this part isn't as good as that part, then we are ordering the value of the pieces of the body in a way that doesn't reflect God's will, God's creative design that we are essentially ordering the body and ordering our place in it according to some other standard, which is probably a God chose. Paul says, listen, he, he ordered it the way he wanted it. This is what it's supposed to be. So that some of us who are in, and we'll get into this here in a moment, some of us who might look down on our part because it doesn't seem as big a deal, uh, to, you know, like a big, as big a part to play, that that causes something in us that might be a reflection of a, of a misordering of, of the, the whole kind of system of the world around us. Because in Christ, there is no kind of racial ordering. There's no social ordering. There's no gift ordering, talent ordering, production. There's no hierarchy at all. This is like a constant argument of Paul through 1 Corinthians. That the Corinthians keep wanting to order and hierarchy and over and over goes, I don't know why you keep ordering people. That is not how God created it. Did did God create some people to be stronger and some people to be physically weaker? Class? Yes. Did God create some people to be smarter and some people to be dumber? I mean, we wouldn't use those words, right? But soft launch. Um, We... Has God caused some people to be uh, harder working by nature and some to be lazier by nature? I'm not going to make you raise your hands. The answer is yes to all of these questions. This is not hard. Yes. So in, instead of us going, well, okay, that must mean they're better. If their person is stronger, that must mean they're better. No, it just means they're stronger. And God chose to give some people strength so that they could have the opportunity to care for some of those people who are weak. And that, that God created gaps in you on purpose. Like the the gaps that you have in your life, the things that you cannot do at all or the things that you cannot do well, 
are there on purpose. So full disclosure, most of the things, if you ever come over to my house and you see things that were made, anything that had to be put together or made, so anything from Ikea or other stores that had to be made, Emily did it. <laughs> if something looked like it was made but not well, I probably did it. This is just, this is the truth. And now, 14 years into marriage, we don't even really talk about it. You know, things come in, box from Amazon, and I just don't even, I don't even, you know, I'm not there anymore. There was a, there was a time where I felt like I needed to struggle over it for a while before she did it, that I, that she always did it. And she's still doing that, but we're, there's, there's time, there's time, there's growth. We have gaps. So that's first. Second, so first is God ordered it. Second, verse 19, if all were a single member, where would the body be? If we were all monolithic and homogenous and we were all one kind of person, one kind of thing, we all have the same strengths and the same weaknesses, then we're, we're, it wouldn't even be a body anymore. It would be a, 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 an amoeba. It would be a single-celled organism. On Saturdays, uh, Saturday mornings, every once in a while, we try to do uh, like family devotions with the kids, and it's it's terrible. I mean, it just keeping the kids in the room is the challenge. Uh, and uh, and so, what we were talking about this, and I often talk about like, well, okay, so you know what the verse is for that week. And so we were going through, and I'm like, oh, what if your whole body was feet? Oh, that's funny, you know, and they're easily entertained. And what if your whole body was ears? And of course, it doesn't take long before they're like, what if your whole body was booties? It wouldn't be very good. It's, it would smell poorly. It would, it would just not work. It wouldn't work. And this is, so in there, they tried to ruin it, but I didn't let them. And we had to explore, what would it be like? Okay, so Paul, Paul goes, I didn't. You guys, come on, work with me here. So Paul's asking this rhetorical question, but it's a real question. Because if, if everybody had the same gifts, what would the church be? If everybody had the same strengths and the same weaknesses, nobody would need each other. We would be able to live these autonomous lives, and that's just simply not what God created us for. So that's one half of the mistake. The second mistake follows in verse 21. It says, The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow greater honor. And our unrepresentable parts are treated with greater modesty. Greater honor to the part that lacked it. That there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffers together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Second response to this idea is not, um, I don't matter and I don't have a place, but yeah, I matter. Of course I matter. In fact, I matter the most. Or, and what we see maybe uh, happen in churches uh, all over the place, is not that a certain person, or maybe we don't personalize it, but we say, yeah, a certain kind of person matters the most. A certain gift matters the most. And we elevate it. Now, what's interesting is, 
at this time, in, in this situation, uh, the kind of surrounding context would lead us to believe that the people were elevating the gift of tongues above all the other gifts. Now, and I'm sure in some charismatic circles that is still the case. In fact, my grandparents, I think, still weep that I don't speak in tongues. They have prayed over me so many times to receive tongues, and I haven't. I've been tempted to fake it once, but I didn't. Uh, But that's not, you know, in, in our tradition, we are probably more prone to elevate the preaching and the teaching. And in fact, many of us have seen what happens when one person or one gift is elevated to a place of idolatry. And the reality is that that person or that gift that's being elevated cannot handle being an idol because we call it idolatry, but it's just you're making that person into a god and that person cannot be a god. They cannot bear the weight of godness. And so even if they convince themselves and convince others for a season that they actually can be that thing and they can actually deliver on all the promises, ultimately it crumbles. And in fact, sometimes um, the longer they can suspend disbelief, the longer they can convince people that they can actually stand up to those expectations, uh, the more severe the crumble will be. See, the closer you get to those people that you idolize, I think the more you realize just how much help they actually need. And just how many other people are doing work to make the thing go. So just the same way we are kind of prone to undervalue certain gifts, we're just as prone to overvalue others and idolize them and deify them. And it's either way the same mistake, which is to kind of impose worldly standards and hierarchy onto the body of Christ and the kingdom of God that God never intended. That God made you weak and strong, he made you smart and dumb, he made you hardworking and lazy, he made you all of these things on purpose so that you would need each other. So that we would recognize that we are not superhuman and we need somebody and some ultimately God in order to make it in the world. That God created us with gaps on purpose to make us keenly aware of the needs that we have. Five said this, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son, Jesus, can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. So even Jesus wasn't living his truly autonomous self. Jesus was living out the kind of perfect vision of what it meant to be a human, and he was constrained, knowingly, willfully, joyfully constrained, playing his role, doing his part, which was the role and the part if there were one, but still constrained, willfully submitted to the job that God gave him. So here's the last part. You have a job. Now, you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. 
And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the higher gifts. And I will show you a still more excellent way. So as I said at the beginning, the idea of spiritual gifts, it, it's, not, it's not first and foremost for icon. And, and I think this is where some, some teaching on spiritual gifts can go really wrong. Like the, the, the point that God has gifted you for was not to build up this thing, this organization, this particular body. Not primarily. We have to always keep a, a, a bigger vision of what God's doing in the world and never convince ourselves that what we're doing, even on the cusp of launch, even as we kind of are in our greatest need of, of all in and commitment and momentum, that even in this moment, we would remember, we just play a very small part that we are not even the only church in Seattle. We are not the only church in, in Capitol Hill that we play a part, even our church is one part of God's larger body. And we have to remember that. But even as our spiritual gifts are not primarily for the local church, they're also kind of not not for the local church. This is our expression. This is our chosen expression of the kingdom of God. And the whole body works best when all of its parts are working together. So I had this moment recently, kind of an aha moment. So I do, I hate to admit this kind of, uh, but I do CrossFit. And the only reason I hate to admit it is because I feel like people look at me and go, really? And, uh, and, and so uh, I don't even want to tell you where because I don't want it to look bad on them, uh, those guys right there, um, who are our coaches. And, and I had this aha moment because I, uh, the very first day I went to CrossFit, we're doing this workout, and I'm kind of eyeballing, I'm a very competitive person, I'm, uh, so I'm kind of eyeballing the people around me and thinking, okay, I can keep up with him, I'm going to toast him, and this woman's next to me, and you know, I kind of figuring out where I'm at, and we're doing this workout, and at a certain point, I, I feel like I'm feeling good, and, I, and I'm only about eh, three quarters of the way done, and then the worst possible thing happened, they all turned and started cheering me on. <laughs> which is just rubbing salt into the wound, right? I mean, I'm sure they meant well, but all I heard was, you're last, you're last. <laughs> and, and so I did the rest of the workout uh, being mocked. And, uh, and, and so I, 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 I've been trying to get better, trying to get better, trying to get better. And I had this aha moment the other day as I was watching one of the coaches do, and I know that sounds dumb, because obviously they're supposed to be doing everything right. But see, what happens when I start to get to the end of a workout, when I'm falling behind uh, the, the middle-aged women that are near me, I, I start to kind of freak out and stress out and start to go like, Ugh! and I just have this, uh, I'm sure, an ugly face of like, and, and I was watching this guy who was one of the coaches, and he was just very calm and was doing the right thing and doing it the right way. And it like dawned on me like, oh, if you just keep doing it the right way, it's better. Somebody should like teach people this. And it was like this, the, the dumbest, most obvious aha moment of, gosh, this works better when you do it right. And it looked better. He didn't look like he was in pain like I often do. He looked like he was just 
in it and doing it. And it was all functioning together. And his hips were working with his shoulders and his legs and all, all of the things. The appendix, it was all working together. When we look at another part and we go, no, I want that thing. I want to be that. Or I don't want to be this. And we start to compare and we start to, that, that's what messes it up. When we kind of over-exaggerate one part of us and under-exaggerate another and it all goes wrong. It all falls apart and we end up last and everybody's mocking us. And what we miss about these gifts is that, in fact, the, the word for gift, every time you see it here in the Greek, is charisma. And the root word of charisma is charis, which in Greek is grace. And that, that's, that's the key idea that we have to get with all of this. That each of these gifts is grace. And gifts of grace are things you cannot gift. is not a reflection on how well you are doing or how uh, prepared you are or how deserving you are. If it's that, it's not a gift. It's something else. It's a paycheck. But Paul calls these things gifts, which means their very nature is that they are undeserved. They are detached from the behavior, detached from the holiness, detached from the intelligence, detached from the hard work of the person who has the gift. So our, our temptation is to look at somebody who has a, a, a particularly honored gift and go, wow, they must be great. No, it's got nothing to do with how great they are. We have all met people who have great gifts and are not great people. Who have great gifts and they squander them through laziness and apathy. And it's only when we tie gifts to deserving that we mess it up. Emily's birthday uh, was just a couple weeks ago, and, and uh, we were traveling, and so I didn't get her a gift right away, but I got her a gift. And, and, and at the time when I bought the gift, I thought, oh, this is going to be great. She'll really like this. Pan. This may not be well received. And, uh, and, and so she was very kind about it, um, but it was just like a cooking pan. And, and you know, it's a gift. She doesn't deserve that. She's done nothing to deserve that pan. I mean, she cooks every meal and does everything for us, but uh, I mean, my, I guess my illustration is breaking down a little bit there, but, um, <laughs> but, but the nature of the gift itself is that it's detached from the person. And it is one, only when we attach it, which is what's happening here in 1 Corinthians, that things begin to go wrong. And we begin to say, okay, no, this is more important than this, and this is more valuable than that. And see, in the midst of that, Satan does this kind of funny thing. Where we hear Paul say, you matter. Your gift matters. Don't devalue yourself. You, you matter. And Satan says, heck yes, you matter. In fact, you matter the most. And Paul says, well, you, you matter, but don't think you matter the most. And Satan says, exactly, you hardly matter at all. You should might as well quit and not even participate at all. That there's, no, there's kind of no winning this game. No matter what we believe, no matter what we hear, no matter what we read, we are behind it all, kind of pushing those buttons and pushing us away from anything that is what Christ made us for. So we remember what Paul says in verse 12 and in verse 27, that this body that we're a part of is not our body, that it's Christ's body. It's Christ's body. It's not our church, it's Christ's church. And when he says, move feet, we play our part and we move. Because when the father looked at the son and said, die, son, 
He died. And when he looked at the son and said, be raised, son, he was raised. So what we see in Christ is not only just a model for us that in submission is life, but we see a a complete paradigm shift that we walk out this path of submission to God who rightly ordered and rightly chose and rightly put together his body. And if we play our part and do our thing and, and kind of do our part of the body the way we're supposed to do it, and it all works together, and then it goes well. And Christ, of all, was asked to do the most difficult thing. He had the most difficult part to play. And not only did his doing of his part kind of set an example for us, but it blazed a trail, and by his grace, we are able to do the same. Your gifts are first and foremost for God's kingdom. And and then specifically for God's expression in the kingdom here in Seattle and even more specifically God's expression here at Icon. And the truth is we need you. I need you. Because I have massive gaps in my life. And, and we're, we're, we feel, Hill, a, a testimony, a light to this neighborhood to testify to the goodness of God and his grace and love for all of the people around us. And I can't do it alone. We can't do it alone. We need each other. So in, in these coming weeks, I, pray, I, I would ask that you would pray. What is my part to play? What, how has God equipped me to be a part of his kingdom here at Icon, here on Capitol Hill? And that we would walk into that. Even if we, by some measurement of our own, think it's not that big, a deal, big of a deal, it's not that important, it's not going to play that big a role, just know we need you. God has put you here for a purpose because we've got gaps that only you can fill. Let's pray. Jesus, um, I'm thankful that I am in need of you. I'm in need of uh, my friends and family here at Icon. I'm in need of Emily. I'm in need of Alona. I'm in need of Brant. I'm in need of Andy. I'm in need and need and need. And I cannot do any of this on my own, which just immediately puts me in a posture of dependence on you and on the people around me. And Lord, it is is so counterintuitive but so powerful that, that it is in that posture of dependence that we can actually tap into your great power. Because when we lean on you, we find that you're strong and that you're capable. And that when we do it ourselves, we are weak and fragile and have massive gaps in our skill set. So God, I pray that you would convince each and every one of us of our deep need for each other, our deep need for you, that we would look to the cross to see, Lord, the fulfillment of all of those needs. And that we would look to the cross to see what power when we play the part we've been asked to play. The power to transform lives. That you work through dependent people who play their part for our own good and for the good of our neighbor. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to the podcast for Icon Church.